Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Financial institutions that are leaders in the use of data and AI are quickly differentiating themselves in the marketplace that puts a premium on data-backed decisions and intelligent interactions. AI brings the potential for disruption and transformation due to its ability to make decisions and take actions much quicker than its human counterpart. It has been seen as a means of increasing productivity within a company and improving revenues through better customer engagements. Despite these advantages, the use of AI is not without pitfalls, risks, and detractors. Will AI discriminate between classes of people or will it open up opportunities with regard to financial inclusion? Will AI be used for good or just corporate greed? And how should AI be used and regulated? To discuss the opportunities and challenges of AI in banking, we are joined today by Dan Fagala, founder and CEO of the artificial intelligence research agency, Emerge. Dan is a globally recognized speaker on the use cases and ROI of artificial intelligence in business and is presented to organizations like the World Bank, the United Nations, Interpol, and global banking companies. So welcome, Dan. It is really great to have you on the show today. To start off, your firm, Emerge, positions itself as an organization that explores what's possible and what's working in the field of AI in order to help business leaders develop winning AI strategies. From reading your website and talking to your team, it's obviously your focus is really to investigate some of the best practices of AI use in various industries to help firms create capabilities that will help them um, compete in a obviously an increasingly digital world while building a strong ROI, which is Bottom line is the bottom line. So one of the reasons I reached out to you was because you just had a research study that you did emerge that looked at the current state of AI and financial services. From your research, what were some of the key findings that you found in that research? Yeah, there's, oh man, Jim, there's a lot to explore here. You know, as you mentioned, well, first and foremost, thanks so much for inviting me. Glad to be here with you. And I really appreciate you uh, succinctly framing my value proposition probably better than I could. You really nutshelled that quite well. But yeah, to, to sort of dive into the research itself, most of our client work is in kind of banking and financial services broadly. And the big sort of takeaways here were numerous, but we can talk about a few. One of them is around conversational interfaces. So generally chatbots and customer-facing applications. While there's an inordinate percentage of the press releases and the kind of announcements about AI from big financial services firms have to do with conversational interfaces, in fact, the amount of money going there is infinitesimal compared to applications around fraud, cybersec, compliance, things like this. What we're finding is that there is an incentive to look modern and what this means is that companies end up putting out a press release about having a chatbot when all they did was sign up for some free trial pilot with some no-name vendor with you know two developers in the Ukraine. And essentially, they're doing it to check the AI box. So a lot of the volume in conversational interfaces is sort of pure fluff and emptiness. And there's only a, a certain number of use cases where there's really any traction. and There's very little money relatively going into there. We can dive deeper into that one. But if you want me to kind of hit on a couple other points, I totally can. No, that would be great. It coincides with the research we've done for the digital banking report. So, yeah, um, share some of the other insights you had, because I think you're right that very much like we see in the innovation area, there's too much talk about AI for the sake of shareholders and too little implementation of AI. 
Yeah, and that has to do with a lot of factors within banking, which I'll get to. So we'll we'll tear through a couple more of these as per your request here. So another pretty key finding is that a lot of the low-hanging fruit in banking when it comes to the ROI of AI, your listeners should be aware if they're not already that, that of course, sort of short-term ROI of AI is not child's play. There are a lot of new competencies here in terms of data infrastructure, a lot of changes in terms of how teams operate and how data is accessed and harmonized and new skill sets. And there's a lot to change to ultimately sort of see business value. It's not impossible, but it's not necessarily easy. But the quote unquote easiest areas where there's the most motive and and certainly, at least in the near term, the most evidence of ROI tend to be applications that have to do with anomaly detection. Now, the, the full report kind of outlines a whole suite of ways that this is coming to life. But I'll give you a few here, Jim, just for some understanding for the audience. We could talk about one that might be a good representative use case, which is around anti-money laundering. So for artificial intelligence to sort of detect patterns, if we can have a number of labeled sort of instances of money transfers, you know, thousands and thousands, maybe millions, who knows, of money transfers that we can have labeled as either safe or, or fraudulent, it's possible for machine learning to detect patterns of what fraudulent has in common that are kind of beyond humans' abilities to hard code a specific rule. And what this turns out to do is it allows us to, in in a, a quick instance, once we have a trained system and we can kind of work through some of the kinks, to be able to have lower false positives, lower false negatives on what we have flagged as uh, potential instances of money laundering or fraudulent payments as well. So again, anomaly detection is a lot of the low-hanging fruit. There's instances of cybersecurity. We could go on and on. But a lot of the can we see the value now falls into that bucket. Yeah, and you know, you gave a lot of case studies in your uh, research as well of what I'll call consumer-facing uses of AI. Can you explain some of the key cases you saw that were interesting to your team? Yeah, you know, to be frank, the bulk here fit the bill of conversational interface. So a lot of what was customer facing was these sort of chat or conversational applications. There's certainly still some work on the call center realm. So I'll give you a few. There's sort of the traditional IVR, so responding to a human voice and then routing them to the next logical question or routing them to the right person. AI is able to sort of enhance that a bit. There's a lot of value to be frank, Jim, in the routing more so than in the answering. So in terms of near-term value, a lot of what we're seeing is that smart companies who have a realistic conception of what AI can do when it comes to customers, whether it be voice or chat, are finding ways to drink in some proxy for what the customer's actual intent and problem is, maybe pick up on a little context on who this caller is based on the phone number, and then connect them to the person most likely to close the sale, the person most likely to handle the issue, the person most likely to cross-sell, whatever the case may be. So the routing, more so than robust and rich conversation, is where we're seeing a lot of the customer-facing applications in, in voice and chat. There are other applications in marketing, like let's say kind of customizing you know, email messages or web experience. There's some applications around sales enablement. So sort of helping salespeople follow up with prospects in more rigorous and and regimented ways. Those, to be honest, Jim, are really quite nascent. So a lot of the sales and marketing in terms of the total pie of sort of where AI investments are going within the big banks and where the funding is going to the vendors. And we, we look at both sides of the coin. A lot of our business is keeping a pulse on the investments and initiatives of the global top 50 banks, and then also the entirety of the financial services startup ecosystem, which is a ton of work. But if we look at either of those pies, we're looking at way less than 5% going into things that could be bucketed as sales and marketing. So customer service is the pie slice that actually has some 
reasonable size, but even there, it's it's astronomically smaller than fraud. But those are a few use cases. I could do a couple more if you'd like. Well, it's interesting because I think your research coincides with what we saw, which is, you know, a lot of the use of AI still is for internal purposes and doesn't yep. – the benefits don't really reach the consumer. When you looked at the financial institutions that you reviewed in your research – what were a couple of the organizations that you thought were actually moving the, the bar forward a little bit? Yeah. So I'm going to do a caveat, and then I'm going to handle your question at a high level. I'm first going to talk about your question at the customer-facing level, which is kind of where you're starting here. So I think this is a good question. It should be noted that in the customer-facing side of things, you and I could say, like, jeepers, you know, we all kind of know how this AI stuff works, and why can't these banks just make it happen? The fact of the matter is customer-facing machine learning-enabled applications are an entirely different ball of wax than doing document search or doing fraud detection for your own internal purposes. It is an entirely different ball of wax. And when I say that, I mean it is a much higher challenge. Let me give you a quick little kind of tidbit on this. So my technical advisor here at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research heads up machine learning at a company called HubSpot. HubSpot is a unicorn company here in Boston in sort of the marketing space. And he's worked on a number of different AI applications in B2B and B2C. And and he's got a nice way of nutshelling it where basically if we have an internal document search program or, or a software within our banking kind of infrastructure and our employees can use it to search for things, if it doesn't work like 15% of the time, but the rest of the time it works better than pretty much any other search tool we have, it's a perfectly viable tool. No employee is going to quit because of that. However, if we have some kind of conversational interface or some kind of real-time kind of marketing application that really changes the customer's experience, it is possible that an egregious screw-up, even 4% of the time, even less than that, would be kind of irreparable in terms of the damage that would happen to the business. So to really dial in the gradients of response and really dial in what those actual interactions look like implies a massive, granular, and ongoing culling and tweaking and adjusting of the algorithms and measurement and monitoring of its results to a level of sort of intensity and and veracity that is almost never needed for internal applications. Almost never. I use the term almost. Almost never needed for internal applications. Here's the other hard part, Jim. That skill set that I've just articulated, that skill set of this absolutely ferocious ongoing adjustment and monitoring of a system. Like if you imagine what Amazon has to do for its recommendations, right? There is no set it and forget it here. This is this is ardent, this is ongoing, this is tenacious. That skill set lives in one place, Jim. The skill set of consumer-facing ML applications lives in one place in the world. It's called Silicon Valley. That's the only place on planet Earth where there is a density of human beings who not only know how to code ML, build these systems, work with data, harmonize things, but also, more importantly, know the rarer skill of the kinds of intense monitoring processes and customer sort of experience monitoring processes that we need to put in place in order to safely have customers really have their experience bent and altered and adjusted and hopefully improved by AI. So I will say, Jim, I can't necessarily blame the banks that customer facing isn't the first place they're putting their money because it's astronomically harder than most people presume. I do want to kind of put that on the table. Let me know if you have any questions. You know, one of the questions I had was, is there any organization that you see that seems to be doing fairly well in the AI space. Yeah. So in terms of the chatbot stuff, people do talk about the Erica's of the world. 
there are some real disappointments here. You know, companies like Wells Fargo, their chatbot's not even available anymore. Companies like Ally Bank, right? This is like, you know, really hip sort of digital only bank. You know, their chatbot's gone. A lot of these things were flashes in the pan that are eviscerated. But if we look at sort of artificial intelligence broadly, two sort of shots across the bow. So in terms of companies in the banking space, at least just knowing your audience that I think are sort of movers and shakers, we could talk about City and we could talk about JP Morgan. I like City as a good baseline example because they do a lot of things in terms of the investing and startup ecosystem monitoring. And then they also do a lot of trials and tests and pilots as well. So they're kind of working the ecosystem in a bit of a broader, hipper way that probably is getting them more interface with the cutting edge than I think a lot of the big stodgy folks are. But even for them, Jim, it should be noted. So I'll I'll talk about why I like their approach in just one second. But it should be noted that some of our research advisors for this research report that you're looking at, I mean, we had folks who work with us very closely who were, let's say, head of AI at HSBC, former head of AI at HSBC, um, C-level people at Citibank, very high-level folks in, in global banks. If you speak with these people, frankly, off the record, it does become pretty clear, Jim, that none of the global top 10 banks have sort of a strong, coherent, comprehensive AI strategy that really allows them to feel confident in marshalling their efforts in certain aspects of the business and building new foundations for the business, or in not redoubling their effort by trying silly trials in different dark corners of the business. Nobody is at that level right now. And so when I say people I like, it doesn't mean I think that they're at that level. It's interesting to note that nobody's there, but it is pretty clear from conversation that they aren't. Why we happen to like Citi's approach is that As it turns out, getting a pilot kind of approved, sort of being able to access and integrate with the big clunky systems of a big old clunky bank, and this is nothing against Citi, it's just a reality of the industry, is really, really tough. You know, going through finance and going through procurement and, you know, being able to get data access and thinking about regulation. I mean, this is just an egregious process to get these pilots off the ground. And, you know, a lot of the time these startups would love a 14-month sales cycle to eventually do some tiny sandbox project for Wells Fargo because that's... That's just not unrealistic. But what Citi is doing with a lot of their investing, with a lot of their kind of becoming embedded in the startup ecosystem and finding ways to sort of buy pieces of these firms or potentially buy them entirely, is they're giving them more ways to interface with the cutting edge ecosystem. When they have a piece of a firm, they're now able to sort of shuffle things through procurement in ways that they couldn't if it was just a vendor pitching them. And so being aware of that, being aware of all the potential barriers, I think they're finding more ways to sort of put their surface area against the innovation surface area outside of the company. And that really shows. We actually did a broader report called the competitive intelligence portion of our opportunity landscape in banking, where we looked at the known AI investments and initiatives of the top seven U.S. banks by revenue, like at a very granular level. And Citi is, you know, in terms of known investments and initiatives, I mean, an order of magnitude sort of above a lot of the other big players in their peers. And we think that that approach that I just articulated is actually a big part of what we think will lead to their success. So obviously one of the opportunities that financial institutions have is to make investments in those firms that are really more advanced and they can get themselves because of talent level and investments and, as you said, even the procurement process. So what other opportunities do you see out there in the financial space that hold merit that maybe financial institutions maybe haven't thought of or or certainly are not implementing? Yeah, when it comes to opportunities for AI. Yes. Yeah, sure, sure. So there's a lot here. Broadly speaking, I think the anomaly detection point that I mentioned deserves to be doubled down on. From cybersec to fraud to compliance, there are a lot of areas where we can tangibly see a needle move in efficiency if we're willing to put in the time. 
and tangibly see an ability to better pick up on anomalies that have business value where we don't need you know a year of runway and split testing to figure out if it's made a some degree of a needle move in terms of business value so one of the challenges here jim you, you talk about so where are the opportunities unfortunately like i mentioned none of the big banks at the time of this recording this is from speaking to the highest level folks, have like remarkably coherent and comprehensive AI strategies where they understand the foundations they need to build, they understand the investments that are most important, and they understand sort of the need for the really long-term, you know, chug away progress on building these new foundations. They aren't there yet. Because of that, leaders within banks that want to be innovative need to be able to find these low-hanging fruit projects. Now, sometimes low-hanging fruit is a very immature thing to say because it presumes we're going to get some quote-unquote quick wins, which are, again, very challenging to, to get to in AI. However, we do need to find areas where integration is possible without spending too many millions of dollars and where some results are possible, where something's measurable and we can go show the boss. In an ideal world, the boss understands the long game. The boss is willing to invest in the long game. But in reality, we do need to be able to focus on as close to a quick win as we can get. And so a lot of applications in fraud and compliance are, are an opportunity area. I think banks should be potentially thinking about first if their priority is traction. The harsh reality is you're going to have to show something for them to give you more dollars most of the time, at least in the reality that we see in the banks. Um, and that's something to bear in mind. Another sort of aspect here of where banks should maybe open their minds to the possibilities of AI is actually where we could move the needle in terms of revenue. So you had brought up, Jim, a little bit ago, a topic around lending and being able to estimate risk based on an individual instead of based on brackets. I think that was something you'd said a little earlier here. And that's a domain where certainly we potentially, with artificial intelligence, this goes, Jim, so this lending example, I should let it be known here for your audience, this is in sort of high volume categories. So auto lending is a nice example. Mortgage, to some degree, is a nice example. A lot of the vendors, and we work super tightly with a lot of the vendors in, in the lending space, um, a lot of them are, are kind of pivoting their efforts to auto because it's very high volume. You probably end up, you know, there's a lot of auto loans for every mortgage that goes out in America. And so there's uh, higher volumes, sort of potentially more replicatable results, transferable lessons from, from one to the next. These sort of high volume categories, potentially, yes, we can learn to say no to more of the people who actually pose a deeper risk than we had presumed. But importantly, we can come to say yes to people we couldn't say yes to before. So the real interesting sort of market share play here that I think probably it might be another 18 months until people start talking about how exciting this is in both banking and insurance, and we do some work in insurance as well, is around being able to say yes to new business. So what are called kind of thin file accounts. A thin file account would be someone who doesn't have the credit history, doesn't have the, the kinds of traditional data inputs that we want to know before we gave them a loan for something, to be able to still calibrate risk based on new data factors for those thin file categories. And Jim, this could be millennials or young people. That's one category. This could also be a lot of the developing world potentially is another category or just other folks that for whatever reason have less data on file to be able to now go and compete and know who to say yes to and win new business and be able to lend out more money profitably and confidently in ways that competitors literally can't do because they're ossified in these old bucketed processes, I think is a market share play and is a revenue play that is underestimated in terms of its importance in the next five years. And I think banks damn well should be tuning in. I agree. And, you know, when you look at AI and we also look at the digital nature of uh, delivering financial services across digital platforms, you also have the ability to do very small 
small size loans. As you said, the, the ability to do many loans for, let's say, phones, little small purchase um, personal loans, yeah. things of this nature that, yeah. you know, right now are, are some of these things are being handled through same, you know, the credit lender, the uh, payday lender. Uh, organizations and all this. And and again, it's using the thin file to b- basically promote the area of, of inclusion, which is important. So moving on to a different subject, when you look at AI and the elephant in the room sometimes is, you know, is this a replacement for humans or is AI more of a supplementary, complementary or a replacement for humans in banking? from your perspective? Yeah, so great big picture question. I actually have an entire TED talk on this at Dan Fagella TEDx URI, that's University of Rhode Island on Google is about 18 minutes on. Essentially, Jim, what we did is we looked at 50 of our best of interviews in different industry sectors. So not just finance, uh, defense, retail, and life sciences. And sort of got a sense of what are the commonalities of what work is going to be potentially automated away and what jobs are going to potentially be more valuable and kind of boiled it down to a couple principles. So people that want to, you know, get wacky with Ted, they can do that. But for financial services specifically, frankly, I think it's going to be a mix. Right now, we are very much not seeing you know, the big crescendo of job loss in in financial services. So at present, it actually feels like, I mean, a lot of these pilots for AI are failing. A lot of them are going in with with very wrong expectations of what AI can even do. So we're hiring data scientists, we're pulling in new subject matter experts. If anything, we're kind of staffing up for a lot of these projects, Jim, and still flopping on them uh, when it comes to the banking world. So currently, we're not seeing enough of this stuff going into deployment to, to even have the chance to, to get rid of jobs it, for most cases, right, for most cases. Um, but I do think it'll end up being a mix. So we will need new kinds of talent, of course, and some of that will be data science talent. A lot of that will be people who are subject matter experts in, let's say, customer service, in, let's say, fraud, in, let's say, marketing, who also know how to talk data. They know how to interface with the data science folks, because as rare as it is, Jim, to have data science skills, arguably more rare is to be someone with robust business context understanding of a certain domain within a company and a clean ability to be able to talk to the data science folks, not write code, not write code, not talk in linear algebra, but talk about how data is used to understand conceptually what it can get done to understand the range of use cases. And this is a lot of our work is presenting kind of the full menu of use cases in a given sector by analyzing all of them. But people who can really grasp that and and interface with data science, they're going to be just unbelievably valuable. And having that ability will be more valuable than, you know, a nice Columbia MBA or something that, you know, however many other thousands of folks actually have, because it's much more rare. So there will be interesting pockets where there's more value, but there is likely to be some work that potentially sort of uh, either gradually fades or in some cases may sort of drop off in a more grandiose sense. So underwriting for lending and for insurance, I think, is kind of a dangerous space, particularly on the lower spectrum, where we really aren't looking at super nuanced, detailed, novel examples, but we are more or less kind of working through rote checklists, playbooks, and passing things through. Some facets of customer service are likely to sort of start to shuffle away here, Jim, when the technology gets better. So the current state of the art when it comes to natural language processing is absolutely unable to really make a dent in dropping that much of our call center staff, like not a ton, not a ton, or or that much of our like chat staff or what have you. There's certain use cases and there's smart ways where we can gain some tangible efficiencies, but it's not the kind of sea change that I think people are really afraid of. It's going to take actually, Jim, in, in the customer service side, my prediction is that it's actually going to take a literal 
paradigm shift forward in the core tech, which might happen eight years from now, might happen 18 months from now, I couldn't tell you, but the core tech is going to have to improve in a tangible sense in order for customer service to fade away. But some of the rote white collar process jobs that don't involve a lot of broader context and sort of do involve more or less following checklists, taking similar inputs, working with them in a similar way and pushing them down the line in a similar way. Some of that white collar side of things I think is potentially ripe for going the way of the dinosaurs. And hopefully we can find ways to retrain those folks. But I think we may have some inevitable shifts and we don't really predict this for another two to three years, but that there may be some pockets and categories where downsizing becomes the only logical thing. Other areas may grow, but I suspect some areas will will have to shrink. Yeah, and I think you referred to a little bit is that I think you're seeing also a mix of um, when you look at the talent gap that's in the banking industry right now, it sounds like you're looking at a combination of reskilling, upskilling, and partnering with outside organizations that have some of this talent where it's not going to be a simple answer of simply buying talent because you need some of the, the you need some of the context around what how data can be used, but you don't have to be a data scientist to know how to apply it if you have those people supporting your efforts. Absolutely, Jim. And I really don't want to you know, I wanna I wanna emphasize that because we have a whole separate sort of branch of our work that has to do with prerequisites of AI deployment. So in other words, if we want to integrate AI and we, we don't want to waste money on a pilot, what do we have to have going for ourselves beforehand? So a lot of money has been wasted um, in banking in the last two years for sort of a misunderstanding of a lot of these factors. And one of them is having that contextual AI understanding amidst our subject matter experts and our leadership of these projects. So if these people don't understand a reasonable range of what kind of use cases AI can do. And if they don't understand conceptually how data is used and what kinds of results we could see as sort of potentially expectable in, ter- in terms of a certain type of use case. And if we don't understand, let's say, that data has to be harmonized and cleaned, if, if we don't understand sort of fundamental parts of how the process works about AI just operating, if we don't understand a healthy landscape of use cases so that we know the bounded reality in which we operate. So we, we have a, a better antennae for what is hype and garbage in terms of a claim and what's realistic in terms of a claim. Without that, we're in a very, very rough spot to actually integrate AI. So a lot of the value of these early pilot projects, Jim, whether we're doing it in-house by hiring talent and having our subject matter experts work with data scientists or by working with vendors, a lot of the ROI, so to speak, even if it's not financial, is the fact that hopefully we now have a cross-functional team that even if we weren't able to deliver a massive financial return, we all kind of understand our fraud data better and we understand how it can be used to drive value better and we understand the use cases that are open to us. Until we have that kind of osmosis transfer into a lot of our subject matter experts in different parts of the business, enabling AI freely Um, Enabling AI in a way where we can really open up and take advantage of the technology is positively not going to happen. And so investing in that subject matter uh, kind of upskilling, as you had mentioned, is literally critical for the industry as a whole to evolve and should be seen as one of the ROIs of early projects. So really shifting a little bit here, there are more and more people and organizations concerned about the ethical concerns as well as the ramifications for governments and companies as it relates to AI. You're obviously a strong voice in this debate. And how do you see banking and, and business in general positioning themselves between 
the commercial use of AI for revenues and the ethical use of AI for a more noble purpose? Yeah, you know, I think in general, Jim, as a, a reader of Michel de Montaigne, I'm relatively skeptical of sort of nobleness as a core motive writ large, not only in sort of individual humans, but in certainly in organizations or nations. I think that, you know, with enough social pressure where some new kind of good is what is perceived as good, then people will shift their perception and shift what they need to be in order to resonate in the market and ultimately continue to do business. So I'm not counting on banks being saints. I'm not counting on you being a saint. But I will say that writ large, two big things here. One, you are right that I speak somewhat frequently on these topics. I just got back from speaking at the the OECD. They just launched their AI policy observatory out there. We're helping them with a number of white papers and interviews you know, spoke for them, spoke at United Nations headquarters on the ethical concerns of AI, you know, the World Bank. I mean, the biggest organizations in the world have, have called upon us for this stuff. A lot of the concerns in financial services are somewhat bloviated. So let me give you a sense of what I mean. The idea that individual bankers are wielding this power to sort of automate away all of their employees at once in some big selfish, greedy move or and then like claw all the profits for themselves is sort of a fictional picture. And a lot of the potential ethical concerns like, oh, what if the transparency isn't clear and we don't know how this decision is made or would that be like immoral to do? Or, well, what if this algorithm is sort of biased in this you know, terrible way? There's really only so many instances within banking. You know, we talk about autonomous vehicles where you can, you know, run yourself into a building. We talk about healthcare where you give somebody a, a drug that's absolutely going to end their life. I mean, in, we're talking about a slightly different gradient of risk. But in financial services, there's only a few areas where this is potentially relevant. So one of them is maybe lending. We look at how does a lending algorithm determine who we're going to say yay and nay to. And maybe it's starting to proxy off of things like zip codes. And maybe zip codes proxy to things like race pretty well. In America, in fact, they do. They proxy quite snugly to race. And so maybe it's wrong for us to use zip codes as a data source and we should kind of consider you know whether gender should be or not or you know whatever right there's different regulations that we need to abide by and so lending is a domain where there's some nervousness there's potentially applications in hr you know which applicants do we take in which do we not maybe those applications become biased over time and they start to screen out folks with certain kinds of last names or start to screen out you know certain folks of certain genders whatever the case may be i think that that's not specific to financial services at all but but it's it's potentially an ethical concern right now a lot of the applications are in super innocuous things like can i find documents for the love of the lord can i find this damn document or is this fraud or not this money transfer is this money is this laundering is there what's the percentage risk of this being laundering versus not knowing those things has been so hard in banking. It's such an uphill road to even get those little things started that to me, it often feels like a very odd, very strange kind of virtue signaling for banks to go off of too much of a deep end and talk about the ethical concerns. Because in financial services, literally getting completely innocuous applications off the ground is like Sisyphus type effort. And so I I often think ethics is a bit of a wasted conversation, but there's some aspects that are potentially relevant, but in, in 99% of banks, they literally are not even remotely close to being relevant um, as of today and won't be in, in the next 12 months for the most part. You know, we, we've unfortunately run out of time based on the, the time frame we usually have. And there is a lot more that I expect to be able to talk to you about today. But I think we covered a lot of subjects. But I, I think the major takeaway maybe is that, you know, we've only scratched the surface on what the potential is. So 
With regard to your research you've done in the banking industry, how do people get a hold of that research or get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. So sometimes people just want to follow us on social. It's pretty easy to find Emerge, E-M-E-R-J. But if people want to learn a little bit more about banking use cases and download kind of our cheat sheet for what financial services folks need to know about artificial intelligence, they can go to emerj.com slash CS and then the number one. So CS stands for cheat sheet. So emerge.com slash CS1 is basically our short PDF brief called the, the cheat sheet for AI and banking which highlights not only the use case range, but also some of the key terms for, for banking leaders to know. So people that want to dive in a little bit deeper, that's probably a great place to find us. Otherwise, just hit me up on social and say you heard about me through Jim's show. Hey, thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate your time today. And uh, we will definitely revisit because there's certainly a lot to cover. Thank you very much. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You know, as we look at the discussion I had with Dan from Emerge, I think it's interesting because I think the overall perspective is we have just begun to touch the surface of what AI can do in regards to banking. Yes, we're using it on the internal basis from risk and, and fraud basis, but even in that category, we're not doing all that's possible. And when he referred to the whole issue of ethics and privacy and things of this nature, I think his overall takeaway was that, you know, we can talk about that, but we are so far away from that being a problem because we're not even using it on the basics. You know, we talk about how we look at innovation and the fact that we do it just for the shareholders. I think the same can be said both on our research as well as the research that Dan's firm has done around the fact that organizations talk a much better game than the implementation of AI within their organizations. I think finally, uh, the example of Citibank is one to really remember that he positioned them as probably one of the top financial institutions with regard to the strategy around AI. And it's not like they're building it all internally. It's the partnerships, it's the purchases, it's the investments in firms that can get them from point one to point 100. And I, I think that opens the door to a lot of possibilities for firms that right now are stuck on stop. And so as we look to AI, I think we really have to move forward. We have to do it now. And we have to really look at the opportunities of using data and advanced analytics for both the benefit of the financial institution as well as the benefit of the customer. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Rate is a top 10 banking podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. While it only will take a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of Banking Transformed to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. Finally, if you haven't already done so, be sure to register for the Financial Brand Forum being held from April 27th to 29th at the Aria Hotel in Las Vegas. Join me and more than 2,500 of your favorite bank and credit union executives to gain valuable insights from the likes of Seth Godin, Martha Stewart, Steve Young and Jerry Rice, Brett King, Omar Johnson, and dozens of other leaders who will share their perspectives during this amazing star-studded event. And be sure to arrive early to catch a private performance by Jay Leno on Sunday night. Go to forum2020.com and register today. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. 
A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lonbrake, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.